0: Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There are those few moments in world history where everything changes as a result of them. The course of history changes because of the result of the actions of individuals or groups of people in one particular moment. This doesn't happen very frequently. We think about the death of Jesus, that would certainly be one. Whether you're Christian or not, or not you can proclaim that yes, world history changed with the death of Jesus. Jesus. Similarly, you could look at uh, the Battle of Tours in the year 732, where Charles Martel and the Army of the Franks uh, kept the Muslims out of Europe. Otherwise, all of Europe uh, might very well uh, be Muslim. Uh, You could look at, perhaps, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914, uh, or the winning of the World Series by the Red Sox in 2004. Uh, All these important moments in world history... Uh, But undoubtedly, one moment that you have to include on your list is something that we celebrate the 500th anniversary of this month. And that is on October 31st, 1517, uh, an Augustinian monk in Wittenberg, Germany, published his 95 Theses. And it's safe to say that Western Europe and indeed world history was changed as a result. And since we ourselves are Protestants, since we stand in that long uh, an honorable protestant tradition i thought it, i thought it fitting that uh, for this month of october each sunday we celebrate the reformation this 500th anniversary the reformation with a different topic a different chance to delve into history and see all of the great events that happened way back some 500 years ago that still affect the way we see things and the way we worship god today and since today, as Naomi mentioned, is World Communion Sunday, I thought, what better way to start it off than to talk about how communion changed as a result of the Reformation. Now, I want you to imagine yourself as someone living in the late Middle Ages. I know, it's a shocking, shocking sense here. You live in the late, late, late Middle Ages, no cars to drive around in. Instead, if you're lucky, you might have a horse. You, uh, you live in a little village, most likely. Perhaps you live in a town. A major city would have 25,000 people in it. You uh, are surrounded by what, by today's standards, would be considered filth. Uh, you, might be, uh, you might have to deal with things like fleas. And if you're in the late Middle Ages, those fleas also carried with them something called the Black Death, uh, bubonic plague. This is a time in the late Middle Ages of great fear and uncertainty. Black Plague, when it came through in the, for- in the middle of the 14th century, wiped out 30% of Europe's population. Imagine if you lived at that time. Also in the uh, 14th century, uh, you had the beginning of what's known as the Little Ice Age where after a a wonderful period uh, in the high Middle Ages that led to a major population growth in Northern Europe, uh, temperatures for the next several hundred years actually slowly declined in Northern Europe, leading to widespread famines. In addition, at this time, you had the rise of uh, trade. You had the rise of increased use of exchange of money. All of a sudden, these elements... Uh, began to overturn some of the established social order. It was a time of great upheaval and uncertainty, and if you lived in the late Middle Ages, one place where you could find certainty amidst all of these threats was in the church. The church appealed to that sense of uncertainty by giving you certainty about something like salvation, how you got into heaven or how you didn't. And again, when life was precious, when people were dying quite frequently, you can see how significant this would be. And no element of the medieval church was more relevant for you as an average believer in the late Middle Ages than the great sacrament of the Mass. Now, after the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, it was officially decreed that the Mass, what happened in the Mass, is something that Roman Catholics call transubstantiation. This is something that relies on the uh, philosophical worldview of Aristotle and was uh, expounded most thoroughly by Thomas Aquinas. What transubstantiation literally means is that during communion, after the priest says the words on the high altar, the words of consecration on the high altar, the bread itself is actually changed from bread into the body of Christ. It is no longer bread. It retains what are known as the accidents of bread, that is to say, the outward forms. It tastes like bread, smells like bread, looks like bread, but it's not actually bread. It's substance, that's what, that, that which it actually is in its core, is the body of Jesus. The actual flesh of Jesus is in, that, is in that piece of bread. Same thing with the wine. After the words of consecration, the wine becomes the actual blood of Christ. The actual blood. Not like, this is not symbolic. It is the actual blood of Christ, even though, again, it retains the accidents of wine. In addition, because this was so holy, because this was so sacred, uh, because it had such import to it, the bread and the wine... Uh, the priests were reluctant to give the wine to the laity, let's say they were to spill it, you'd be spilling the very blood of Jesus. And so the practice arose of only giving one of the two parts of the, of the Eucharist. You would receive the bread as a lay person, not the bread and cup. And there was this great fear of taking communion, because you may not have affected this, but I'm sure you heard someone in the next town over or someone else who came to communion without having confessed everything at confession. And you know what happened to that person, don't you? I'm sure you remember the story. Person goes forward, starts taking of the host. Next thing you know, you, the throat starts swelling up. That person starts choking and dies right there because they took of the host unworthily. And because you knew these stories were true and you knew they happened all the time, the last thing you wanted to do was actually take communion. So taking communion became so infrequent that in the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, they had to require that everyone takes communion at least once a year. That was the minimum. Even though you didn't want to go near it, you had to do it at least once a year. Moreover, there was this great theology of what happened on that high altar was not just transubstantiation, but it was, in fact, uh, a living sacrifice of Jesus. As Jesus was physically present on that altar... The sacrifice that happened on Calvary and Golgotha was repeated there. And that repetition of that sacrifice on that altar actually had atoning value. You could do that sacrifice and sins could be forgiven because of that sacrifice on that altar at that moment. And as a result, you had uh, masses being given quite frequently. uh, Private masses where let's say you uh, had a lot of money and you wanted to make sure that you spent as little time in purgatory as possible, what you could do is you could give a whole bunch of land to a monastery with the stipulation that once a week a mass would be said for you and your family in perpetuity in order to absolve some of the sins that you and your family members had built up over time. Understandably, this is, this is a great money-making venture for the monasteries. <laughs> but it also led to the practice of private masses happening consistently all over a church. You could walk into a major cathedral church, and there might be several masses going on at once as these priests were paid to say this Mass and to reenact the great sacrifice of Jesus and thereby deliver people from their sins. And as a result of this, and again, this, this whole spectacle took place in Latin with the priests wearing fancy garbs, fancy vestments, vestments that were way beyond your wildest imagination as an average citizen in the late Middle Ages. And, and during the high point of the Mass, all of a sudden in Latin, you, you might understand only a few parts of it, you might know the paternoster or, or a few other bits of the mass, but at, 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 at the great moment after the consecration the priest would elevate the host which again is the actual body of Christ and it was believed that even just by staring at the host you could receive benefit from that so you actually had uh, late medieval Christians, you know, going from one mass to another just to look at the host and observe it and pray to it and get the grace that comes from it, you don't, you don't want to go near it and taste it but at least you could see it. And in cathedrals where they had choir screens, where it was difficult to see it, they would ring a bell so that you knew when it went on. You knew when that great holy moment was happening. This was the center not only of medieval piety and devotion, but also, of course, reinforced the power of the church. Only the church had this great power. And only the priests of the church had it. Now, after 1517, when Luther published his 95 theses, the town where he taught, again, he was a university professor in this town in Saxony called Wittenberg. And Wittenberg, after Luther published these 95 theses, and they got printed via the miracle of the printing press, the World Wide Web of the Day, got printed and spread throughout Europe, all of a sudden, Wittenberg became the place to go if you were a priest who wanted to study the new stuff, the radical stuff, the cool stuff, You went to Wittenberg. It was like Berkeley in the early 1960s. All the radicals just kept funneling their way to Wittenberg. Uh, To such a degree that by the time 1521 comes around, 1521 is a big year in the Reformation. uh, Because 1521 was was the year of the Diet of Worms. That great thing you learn as a high schooler. The Diet of Worms. Wow, what's that? The Diet of Worms was actually a meeting in the city of Worms uh, in Germany, uh, an imperial meeting. So Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, was there along with all the princes and and, and major figures in the Holy Roman Empire. And one of the things on their agenda was to bring Martin Luther before them and have Martin Luther recant from his heresy. Famously, Martin Luther refused to. And because he had a powerful protector in Frederick the Wise, was not immediately killed but but had a bounty placed on his head... And so in 1521, he was actually in hiding in Wartburg Wartburg Castle. And so Wittenberg was without its great star, but another university professor, Andreas Karlstadt, was there and took the lead. And by this point, enough time had gone by that it was time to actually implement the Reformation. And so you get to December of 1521, and Karlstadt announces that he is going to celebrate the Mass in a reformed way. And this literally leads, according to the stories, of virtual riots on the street. Again, picture Berkeley, 1960s. People sitting in, you know, uh, you know protest signs everywhere. Uh, I, I don't know if, well, anyway. <laughs> uh, anyway, this, there's this great, great excitement around this. Karlstadt said he's going to celebrate this on, on New Year's Day, but then so much, there's so much excitement in the air, he decides to jump the gun. And on Christmas Day, 1521, at the, at, at the, at the church in the castle of Wittenberg, Carlstadt shows up, and he's not wearing his vestments. He's only wearing the, the garb of a university professor, the gown of a ver- university professor. And he gets up there, and he starts saying the Mass in German, not in Latin. And he's facing the congregation, and he gives people in the congregation both the bread and the cup. And he doesn't require that people go to confession beforehand. This is radical stuff. I mean, this is radical stuff. First time that a Reformed Mass was celebrated in the modern era. Now, the ideas that were encapsulated in that actually uh, owed a lot to a famous essay of Luther's that he had published the year before in 1520 called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. One of Luther's great essays. And The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, Luther lets loose on the abuses of the sacrament. And he relies in part on the passage that we had read this morning. Which is one of the four examples of the institution narrative in the New Testament. This one from 1 Corinthians. And Luther says, listen, nowhere in these four narratives does it say that you should only get one element of the Eucharist. Everywhere it's commanded to get both bread and cup. Now, I know you're sitting here saying, well, this is not that big a deal. But you have to remember that in 1415, Jan Hus, who is an, a Bohemian uh, radical, not Bohemian in the thing we think of now, but actually from Bohemia, uh, Jan Hus was actually burnt at the stake in part for offering both bread and cup to people and arguing that that should be done. So actually, the stakes are pretty high on this. But Luther's like, there's no biblical evidence not to give both uh, both the bread and the cup to the lady. And he also bashes transubstantiation, saying there's nothing here that says something that, that There's nothing in Jesus' words that implies that the bread and cup right there actually become Jesus as Jesus is there. It's not implied there. is not biblical. And he he reserves his most vehement argument against this notion that the mass itself is a sacrifice of Jesus. He said, no, Jesus was sacrificed once on Calvary, on Golgotha, and that was good for all times. This is not a re-sacrifice. Big deal. Now, when I was a little kid, uh, I had the privilege of attending the Wellesley Hills Congregational Church in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And I remember sitting in the pews there uh, during communion. Now, the way that we would do it back then is we'd always do communion in the pews. And first, I remember sitting there, a little kid, and this tray would come by with little bits of uh, Wonder Bread chopped up. And remember taking my little hands and having a little Wonder Bread in my hand. And, wondering, and I'm being told by my father I couldn't eat it yet. I had to wait for everyone else. I remember sitting there holding the wonder bread So I was supposed to eat it then ate, ate the wonder bread and then they had these little cups that came through except they weren't the, the easy plastic disposable cups so these little pewter little mini pewter chalices and filled with grape juice uh, a little third of a shot of grape juice and I had to sit there and hold and wait and then down my third of a shot of grape juice and then, you, and then there was always that great clicking sound as you put the cups into the pews. We actually, we actually still have some of those uh, holders for the communion cups. But I'd go through this ritual I remember saying to myself as a kid I'm like what why am I doing this? You ever feel that way? Why am I doing this? Like the, I, I, and I was, it, was, it was hard for me because like, we, uh, as kids, would leave the service after the children's message. But during communion Sundays, we had to stay for the whole service. <laughs> so we'd just sit there and listen to the sermon, drag on, and the prayers, and then, of course, the communion liturgy itself. So this was a long time sitting there as a kid, and I remember being like, gosh, I... You know, when it was time for communion, I'd be like, oh no, oh gosh, communion Sundays. But you know, it's funny, even as I've gotten older and as i become a a clergy person, I still have people in churches saying, why are we doing this? What's the point of this? Can't we just cut it out? I mean, the service gets that much longer. Is it really necessary? You ever think that? You ever hear those thoughts running through your head? Luther had a really important point he made about the Eucharist. And it relies on a line that we see in 1 Corinthians. It's a classic Lutheran move here. In that line it says, you know, this this cup uh, is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Well, the Greek word for covenant is also the Greek word for testament. And for Luther he said, this is, he, said, he, he insisted on saying, this, this blood is the blood of, the, of a New Testament. Or this is a testament in my blood. And when, he, and when he said testament, again, testament can either mean covenant, some agreement, or like a last will in testament. And given the fact that this was literally his last meal, Luther's like, it's pretty obvious that that's what he's, that, that's what he's referring to. That this is a last will in testament. Here's where it's significant, for Luther anyway. This is how Luther would would explain it. A covenant is a conditional statement. If you do this, then this. Right? If you fulfill your part of the covenant, then I'll fulfill my part of the covenant. If you are a good person, I will give you eternal life. If you do the right things, God will reward you. You see covenants showing up, say, in the Old Testament, you know, covenant with Abraham. If you follow my laws... Then you know you will you will be a great nation. A testament is different, though, according to Luther. A testament, this is where this is something that, that's a gift that someone who's going to die is passing on. It's not a conditional anything. It's that because this is happening, then this is the result. Because I'm dead, you will receive this. It's a free gift. There's no conditions involved. It's unconditional. This so is what Luther says is the key to the, what happens in the, in the Eucharist. When forgiveness for sins is, is offered in the Eucharist, when, or at least when it's, when, it's, when it's talked about in the Eucharist, when Jesus is, in, is instituting this as a Last Supper, it's not, if you're a nice person, your sins are forgiven. It is, because I am doing because, because of my death and resurrection, your sins are forgiven, period. There's no condition to it. It's just the good news just delivered to you like that. Because this is happening... Your sins are forgiven. Because this is happening, you have eternal life. You didn't do anything to merit it. There's no action on your part. It is a testament. And it's a testament that's sealed and attested to in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That, according to Luther, is what the sacrament's all about. It is the establishment, the handing on of the last testament of Jesus to his followers. At Yale Divinity School, we would have a communal worship service every day, Monday to the Friday, at 10.30 a.m. No classes could be scheduled between 10.30 and 11.30. And every Friday, we had a communion service. And the communion service was done in different ways, uh, depending on you know, who was leading the service at the time. They wanted to show the breadth of different ways of celebrating things. Well, I remember my first year in October, Uh, October, uh, around the time of National Coming Out Day, the YDS Coalition for LGBT Concerns would lead the Eucharistic service. Now, this is just when I was coming out. This is just when I was wrestling with this. And if there's one thing that I had at the time, it was an immense amount of self-loathing and self-hatred of myself. Uh, Even though it was hard to name it, but it was there. I mean, when you live in a heterosexist, homophobic society, this just gets ingrained in you. And I remember sitting there, and they, you know, one of the songs that we sang was There's a Wideness in God's Mercy, these great words from Frederick Faber. You sing There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. And I remember coming forward and hearing those words anew. And as I remember taking of that, taking that bread and dipping it in that wine and putting it in my mouth, and there was something about it where I heard that word of you are loved and forgiven right now, as you are. Not if, no if statements. Right now, you are forgiven. I remember going back to the pews at, at YDS and having tears streaming down my face. Because there was something about that action, hearing those words and actually taking that physical bread, dipping it in that wine and ingesting it in me that somehow at that moment I actually felt it. I felt it in my soul and in my very self. I felt those words. I heard that testament. The Reformation forever changed the way in which Christians in the West would talk about Communion. Communion became something new for Protestants. It became this testament of Jesus that you are forgiven and you are granted eternal life. And I hope as we come forward to this table in a little bit that you'll be able to experience that same message. You'll be able to hear that same testament. And you'll be able to give thanks to God for it. And give thanks to those revolutionaries who risked their lives. Some 500 years ago, so they could get a little bit closer.